Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. In the past week, as people have attempted to make sense of the violence in Israel and Gaza, the problem of mis- and disinformation has once again risen to the fore. A lot is written about the supply side of these phenomena, including how propagandists and political leaders are using messages and platforms to impact public opinion. But less is written about the demand side. When it comes to false beliefs that each of us adopt and harbor to help us understand the world and events in it, what are the incentives and social dimensions that each of us as individuals and as members of a community are responding to that drive our appetite for misinformation? Today's guest has devoted her research to this subject and has just published a book that serves as a very accessible entry point to the latest scholarship on this question. And just to note that this conversation was recorded in September. I am Dana Gal Young. I'm at the University of Delaware. I'm a professor of communication and political science. I'm also a visiting sabbatical scholar right now at the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. I am the author of Wrong, How Media, Politics, and Identity Drive Our Appetite for Misinformation. Let's talk about the title first. Wrong, right? You distinguish between misinformation and wrong information. What's the difference? So the title wrong, if you think about it, wrongness resides on the part of individuals, whereas misinformation is the content that is empirically false that's out in the world. And there are a lot of brilliant people studying what I call the supply side of misinformation, that is that empirically false information that is on social media or that comes from elites or that is shared by neighbors that's out there. Whether it's misinformation or disinformation that's knowingly shared, even though it's it's false. But my interest really is more on the people side of wrongness. So why is it that we are attracted to information that's empirically false? What do we get from information that's empirically false? And because wrongness comes from us in some ways, that means that we are also able to disrupt it. I approach it from that perspective. And I had told my editor early on, like, I want to study the demand side of misinformation. And she was like, Oh, but that's cool. And I wanted it in the title, how we have demand for misinformation. She's like, mm-hmm. I think people aren't going to like that because I don't think people feel that they demand misinformation. I'm like, it's the term, like supply and demand. And uh, she's like, yeah, but I think that people will push back. And sure enough, when I was out talking with my, my parents' friends about what I was working on, and I used the term demand, and this woman said, what about for those of us that demand to not be misinformed? I'm like, yeah, this is missing the point. Okay. So a parable about the value of editors. Correct. So in the class I teach on uh, tech media and democracy, one of the things that we try to do early on is dispel certain ideas that folks might have about how to fix uh, social media and democracy or fix the information ecosystem. Fun. Can you uh, tell me what those are? Those are well, fun. One of them is 
something that I think this book or segments of it will help to address in the syllabus is this idea that if people just get correct information or unbiased information, they will make better decisions. Why is that? Why is that a wrong idea? That is a wrong idea, unfortunately. Well, really, because we are not really motivated to be accurate, Justin. We're not motivated to be empirically accurate in our understanding of the world. There are a lot more fundamental motivations that drive us. And in the spirit of alliteration, I call them the three C's, comprehension, control, and community. So what we really are motivated to do is, one, feel like we understand what the heck is going on, feel like we comprehend the world. Uh, Number two, we want to feel like we have control, agency, or some kind of power over our own lives and the things going on around us. And number three, we want to feel like we're members of a community and that we're connected with individuals in a community. So those are our social motivations. The trick then is if information that is empirically accurate is delivered to us, but it undermines those other motivations we really are not super inclined to integrate that new information and update our beliefs, especially if our beliefs are offering us a wonderful sense that, of like comprehension, control, and community, which if you think about the two major misinformation crises that we've been in, right, the election denialism and COVID misinformation, I think those two crises really embody those three C's, people felt that they could comprehend how it is that Donald Trump lost the election. He didn't like that, right? That's their belief. They comprehend it in that he did not lose the election. They have control in the sense that, oh, we could just go and try to interrupt the certification of the votes on January 6th. That's a sense of control. And they had community in this giant group of people now as many as 70% of Republicans who believe that the outcome of 2020 was illegitimate. We wish that true information would immediately correct beliefs, but that's not how we as humans work. One of the things that's uh, interesting about this book is that you don't just talk about these ideas uh, in broader context or the context of other people, but you talk about your own experience. Uh, You open the prologue talking about how you fell into a sort of set of conspiracy uh, theories around the time of uh, your late husband's struggle with a brain tumor. But then you also tell more incidental stories about your own misunderstandings about the world and how those are driven. One about the green mailboxes in Philadelphia. I really hope that this resonates with folks and that I'm not the only person that thought this, but let me just explain first why I came at this with so many first-person anecdotes. Um, Number one is I think that social scientists in many instances have so many important things to say and so many important findings that the public would love to hear about, but we use a sort of epistemological frame that separates us from regular people, but we are regular people. So to pretend that we're not regular people, I think is a mistake. And 
as social scientists, we should know we're studying the very biases that we all have. We're not special. We don't not suffer from these biases. We have them. And that really hit home during COVID when I realized that a lot of folks were looking for control and understanding. And I thought, oh, a lot of these folks are very smart and they're starting to go down these rabbit holes with conspiracy theory beliefs. And I recalled that time in 2005 when my husband was diagnosed with a brain tumor and my whole life was falling apart and I did the same. And it felt really good at the time. And it was the social norms of our community of artists and friends and comedians and academics who really made me feel that to understand and try to control his illness through conspiracy theory beliefs, it was just, it was not the appropriate way to do it because it just, it didn't fit with the sort of ethos of our community. And it also wasn't getting us anywhere. And it was so not, Mike was just so playful and grateful, and he would never have gone down one of these rabbit holes. So it felt inappropriate to do that. And I started thinking, it is really effective to talk about these things as a social scientist in the first person. And so I wrote a piece for Vox about that time period, and it got a huge response. It got really a lot of empathetic emails from folks who themselves were entertaining conspiracy theories or whose loved ones had entertained conspiracy theories. It just felt like it was the right voice to use. So in the book, I use more banal examples where we fill in the blanks all the time in ways that help us understand the world around us, but are often incorrect. And one of my ways of understanding the world was Living in Philly, there were the blue mailboxes on the corners that you could mail a letter in. And you open the thing and you put the letter in it. And then next to those blue mailboxes were these big kind of army green boxes that looked older. They looked a little shabbier. And there was no slot. There was no place to put an envelope. And so I, in my mind, filled in the blank and and understood that those were the old default mail system that was no longer operative. And I went about my business thinking that until I said to my late husband, Mike, and our friends walking down the street, like, where are they going to get rid of that old mail system? Like, it just takes up so much space. I'm sure you got a lot of looks. (laughs) They just stopped and they were like, what are you talking about? They're like, those are called relay boxes. And that is where the postal workers leave their bags of mail so that they don't have to carry it all around and break their back as they're delivering it throughout the city. And just little moments like this, we're wrong about stuff all the time. It helps me to understand the misinformation problem to recall that a lot of wrongness does start with us. That's an example of what you call comprehension. And you get into the dynamics of how that works. Let's talk a little more about control. You've already mentioned COVID-19 the January 6th insurrection. Um, You talk about the idea that, of course, individuals are are trying to assert control over situations, but also communities are doing the same thing, that this is a kind of communal activity to assert control. Right. And a lot of these three needs operate synergistically. So 
The idea of control is fascinating because when you really start to boil down why it is that we do so many things in our lives, you realize that it really is to have, to feel like we have agency. And I don't want to use the word illusion of agency, but in some cases, you have to ask yourself, is this actually providing me control over the situation or is it making me feel like I have control? And you're right. Our communities help to shape or define how it is we exercise that need for control. I'm thinking in particular, with COVID, COVID is a very simple context to witness that idea of community-driven control. If you look at sort of conservative communities and how they would think about masks and masking. And instead of thinking about masks as a way to control the virus, the masks were framed as some kind of a tool of oppression or authoritarianism and infringing upon my individual freedoms and my autonomy. And so I exert my control by refusing to wear a mask. And it's, to me, the social dimension of these beliefs and motivations is so essential because it's very difficult to separate individual motivations from socially shaped motivations. In fact, I don't even know if it is possible. So that's that third piece, that community piece that informs those other two. So if the first half of this book looks at how we come to understand the world around us, the second half puts it in context, the moment we're in, the technology, media, political, cultural context of today. So you get into this idea of partisan sorting or sorting more generally, how the divides that we see present in the U.S. at the moment are driven by everything from politics, of course, but also race, religion, even geography. I am struck by a couple of ideas here. One, I remember reading recently a research study by a guy called Petter Tornberg, who was talking in particular about the role that social media plays in this context. The idea, he says, of the crystallization of conflicting identities and the intensification of polarization driven by a process in which sorting begets sorting and polarization begets polarization. How do you think about this sorting that's happened and the role that sort of media and tech are playing in it? So I think about the social sorting in the U.S. context. I think that the mechanism that I discuss here can be applied in other contexts, but I'm an Americanist, so I look at it in the U.S. But given that our political parties have come to capture all different dimensions of identity, from race to religion to geography to our cultural ideology. And and that is a sorting process that I discuss in the book, and a lot of it's from Liliana Mason's work um, and others, looking at the sociodemographic sorting of the parties over the last 40 years, really starting with the, the push towards civil rights in the 60s, which created this sort of racial partisan realignment And now we have a Republican Party that is very homogeneously white, Christian, rural, culturally conservative, 
in a democratic party that is actually quite diverse. It is a party of racial and ethnic diversity, maybe more secular and agnostic, suburban and urban, culturally moderate and liberal. What that means then is, and I see social sorting of the parties as this creating the sectarianism that links those three C's I mentioned to the efficient exploitation thereof by political and media entities and organizations. So because how we comprehend the, the world, have control over it and have community within it is shaped by our social identity. And because our social identities now are so much about these meta-political identities, then they serve as this efficient proxy, especially on the right. And this helps explain some of the asymmetry, I think, where you have this homogeneity and identity on the right that is white, Christian, rural, and conservative. That drives that engine very efficiently. And what social identity does is it makes the engine of an attention-based, engagement-based, outrage-based economy run. So that the social sorting is what I see as bridging the individual psychological processes on the one hand with these sort of macro-level processes on the other. And we can talk also about the those distinct roles played by those different entities, political elites, journalism, social media. Well, let's talk about journalism at the start. And you talk about this in various ways. You bring in Fox and Dominion as one great example of the types of dynamics that you're talking about. Uh, What's the role of journalism in this logic of how social identity interacts with our politics and polarization? There are various layers to the story. One is that the profit demands of journalism, especially um, television news and you know national news, those profit demands make it that there are pressures to engage and titillate, and that often results in content that is hyper-personalized, conflict-driven. And these are the same biases that have existed forever, right, since like the 80s and 90s with the consolidation of media ownership at that time. However, the kind of personalized fragmented, dramatic news of the 80s and 90s is very different from the personalized, dramatic, fragmented news of today because the cultural and political backdrop has changed. So today, the, the biases in the news towards personalized, dramatized, fragmented stories will almost necessarily highlight the ideological and identity extremes of the parties like your Marjorie Taylor Greens, for example, because of the demands of the market and because of how conflict and conflict is at the heart of those identity threat performances, which is so much of what we see from our political elites. And elites are rewarded with time and attention by journalists for those performances of social identity threat and social identity trying to perform the role of the prototype of your party. This is based on some work by um, Daniel Kreese and Regina Lawrence and Shannon McGregor, looking at this concept of performing 
partisan identity among elites and how we're seeing that so much more now because of this, the internal homogeneity of social identity, especially on the right. Also in the context of journalism, we're talking about pressures. I, I cannot ignore, because to me, it's like the really big piece of this story, the decimation of local independent journalism across the United States and the fact that we have communities that have no local news. What that means is a constant focus on nationalized issues and nationalized news coverage that instead of thinking about public policy at the state and local level, will inevitably focus on those quote-unquote culture war issues, those wedge issues, those social issues that are very divisive. And they're cheap to cover, and you can cover them from 30,000 feet up. And to the extent that we live in a world with not a lot of funding for local independent journalism, I, I see that problem as getting worse. I want to bring in that example, though, of Fox and Dominion. How do you see that sort of fitting into this uh, framework or this set of ideas that you're exploring here? So, so fascinating. So when you think about what runs the Fox News engine in particular, and it is also true for MSNBC, I will say, but especially for Fox, these are cable news outlets that are focused on reminding their viewers of their social identity. And one way to remind people of a social identity is to remind them of the threat posed by the other side. The the quickest way to make someone's team identity salient is to remind them of the threats to that identity that are being posed by outgroups. And the reason that that is the business that they're in is simply because that's their economic model, of course that these are ideological outlets that are designed for that purpose. Now on Fox, it is, it's at a whole other level. And you could say that it's because that was the explicit purpose of the network's creation back in 1996. You could say that it's because of that internal homogeneity of white Christian rural conservative viewers, but whatever it is, it works very efficiently. The problem is then you have this entity that Fox that is always trying to anticipate the social identity needs of its viewers and deliver upon a platter content that reinforces that identity, content that reminds them of threats to that identity, because that's what's hyper engaging. Okay. And we know that because we know, like, for example, before Tucker Carlson was let go, the data analytics and reliance on the minute to minutes was super intense there. Like they knew exactly what their audience was responding to. And it was threats to social identity, often based on race, traditionalism, traditional values and culture. So when you have the the Fox Dominion lawsuit, I just see as the logical outcome of that engine. You have viewers who have been told that their entire way of life is under threat for months. You have viewers that have been told that there's one person who is there to defend their entire way of life, and that's Donald Trump. You have viewers that have been told that the system itself is not to be trusted, that it's it's riddled with fraud. And Donald Trump and other elites themselves drove much of that rhetoric, but Fox was very willing and able to serve as the conduit for that. 
and provide the forum for those beliefs. Think about what the Dominion allegations offered. It is the three C's, comprehension, control, and community. You have false information by Sidney Powell and Giuliani and others basically claiming that these are machines that switch votes. These are machines that switch votes from Trump to Biden. Well, that, if I have been watching Fox News for months, my identity is super salient. I feel like it's under threat. And gosh, if we don't win this election, everything is going to burn to the ground. And now it's like, well, we didn't lose. Those voting machines flipped everything upside down. So that's how I understand the election. How do I want to control it? Well, clearly by somehow punishing that company. And now I have community because I'm with like-minded others who also believe these same things. As Fox News chased their viewers that they had whipped into a frenzy through identity threat, they found themselves in a bit of a pickle. And you can see it in those text messages and emails that came out through that lawsuit. They are behind the scenes getting in touch with each other, basically being like, we have effed ourselves here because if we do not deliver the Trump actually won narrative like our viewers want, they're going to jump ship, which they started to do. They were going to One America Newsmax. So this was a this was their own Frankenstein. This was a monster of their own creation. And they paid the price for it. Maybe not a big enough price, but. Let's talk about the role of social media. You talk about the fact that, well, you reference Siva Vajanathan's idea that social identity is the backbone of social media logics. I suppose if things like Fox are an example of the dynamics you're talking about, Social media is at a whole other level. Yeah. And I also am very proud of myself. Well, I say that I'm proud of myself because the social media chapter, this is a book about misinformation and media. And the social media chapter is like chapter eight out of nine, I think. And I think that is important, especially as a media scholar. I think people would be like, wow, that's weird. I would have thought you put that first. But it's at the back of the book for a reason. And it's because the dynamics that social media takes advantage of originate elsewhere. And I think that's crucial. And as I say, people do not jump on Facebook and out of nowhere decide to look for a Facebook group interested in critical race theory. Like that's just not a thing. But that being said, there are logics and affordances of social media that that take advantage of and really benefit from all of the dynamics that we've talked about so far. So because social media is able to make use of our user data, because social media is incentivized to get breadcrumbs from us constantly, because that's how they're able to target us so well with advertising. But in the only way that they can get those breadcrumbs is by eliciting emotional responses from us. And so Facebook will prioritize the content that is outrageous and makes us mad or makes us proud. And we are social animals. It seems so trite, but we are, we cannot exist alone. Dynamics that involve our sense of our status on our team 
are always going to be really emotionally powerful for us. And so, so yeah, social identity is, yes, he was right, right? Social identity is the backbone of social media logics. You talk a little bit about why policing the kind of phenomena of disinformation, misinformation on the supply side is problematic precisely because of that, because of the fact that it's all identity on the actual logic of the platforms themselves. How do you think about the supply side? How do we move beyond supply side policing? It seems very important to do a bit of both, right? You can't give up on the supply side, but I suppose it doesn't answer the problem squarely in your view. It doesn't, but I am not someone who says content moderation is a waste of time. Absolutely not. In fact, I know a lot of folks working in this space also don't like that term, content moderation. I don't either. I think changing user motivations as they engage with social media is the goal that we should probably put at the center. I think a lot of folks, especially in the public, think that content moderation involves like the taking down of false information and accounts that post like, false information. I think they perhaps don't recognize how much of it is about contextualizing that information, providing other sources that you could look to for context, or trying to put in little speed bumps so people slow down. And when you think about it, what is it that those speed bumps are doing? It's really about trying to alter our motivations as we engage with that content. That's what those speed bumps are for. It's about trying to get us to recenter other needs other than social identity-driven needs. And I think that is the approach that we might want to go for. And not to put too heavy of a burden on individuals, but I, I think one of the things that I call for in the solutions piece is if we as individuals rethink how we engage with journalism and social media, that if we think in terms of democratic health in our own performances of our identity and trying to diversify our performance of of identity and recognize the pressures that exist for us to perform outrage and to be a good member of our team, that if we disrupt those a bit, it could help to slow all this machinery that is actually working really efficiently to drive us apart. You do have a chapter, of course, on solutions. You, as you just mentioned, you go into journalism, uh, solutions in social media, and a lot of recommendations for what uh, regular people uh, should get up to. Let's just talk quickly about what you think needs to happen and maybe through the lens of how confident are you that these things actually will happen on any time scale that's meaningful? What do you hope will happen in journalism and in social media to start? Let me just say that because of the feasibility question, which is basically what you're asking, notice that I gave up on the political elites and partisan media. I don't call for solutions from those entities because the entire incentive structure is broken right now and they would have no why would partisan elites look to dismantle gerrymandering, for example, right? Like, so, so there are answers that exist in those other places, but I wanted to spend my time thinking about 
places where there are people who are really democratically focused and I think who do want things to work. And in my mind, that is in journalism, social media, yes, even in social media, and among individuals. So in journalism, one is this idea of democracy-centered reporting, which is something my colleagues have been calling for years, which is not rewarding those elite displays of identity threat, that is maybe relegating them to to a footnote, focusing on on institutions and processes and policy, Uh, remembering that framing every debate in terms of left versus right will only serve to increase the salience of partisan identity, and it will drive this engine even more. Now, this is delicate when we know that a lot of the behaviors that are populist authoritarian behaviors are coming from the right. So I think it's essential that journalists find ways to separate Republican elites who are engaging in these behaviors from the interests and the values of regular Republican voters. And to me, that's essential. In in the realm of journalism, we really need a robust public media system in the United States. That is a tricky one because that too has been politicized and that's not an accident. And investing in independent local journalism. The Knight Foundation has this huge multi-million dollar initiative now philanthropic organizations coming in to build robust, independent, local community journalism is, to me, such a winning answer because as individuals consume information about their local communities, their national political mega identity gets diluted. Instead, they're thinking about real people and people in their community and shared interests with people who may not think the same way they do politically, but they all agree that their local high school football team is awesome. Um, That's essential. And at the level of social media, really just transparency requirements for the platforms, which researchers have been calling for years. We really have no idea what is going on. And even my dear friends who engaged in this really complex, comprehensive partnership with Facebook to look at Facebook's data hand-in-hand with Facebook researchers. Even that, we witnessed how Facebook was trying to change the narrative that came out of that, of those findings. Um, We just need transparency requirements, and we need data, anonymized data, to be made available from the platforms for us to make sense of, for all kinds of people to make sense of, for gosh sakes. Let me then ask you what you'd tell my listeners. What should they do? What are solutions that they can engage in as participants, as citizens in this? My favorite one is this concept of intellectual humility, which, and this is my new fascination and fixation. The more we are open to the possibility that we might be wrong, the greater the likelihood that we will be empirically accurate in our beliefs. It's it's actually quite close to a scientific mindset, right? Where scientists are always trying to prove themselves wrong, right? We're not trying to prove ourselves right. We're always trying to break our theory. Let me prove it wrong. Let me put it in the most hostile conditions and see if it still holds. 
I think that is such a valuable mindset and something that we never see performed by elites because it's punished by our media environment. Intellectual humility is you know, saying, oh, this is what I think, but I could be wrong. How many times have you seen someone who is in a position of authority who changes their mind based on new information and is then now framed as a hypocrite or wishy-washy or weak? But that's actually what we want people to do in light of new information is update their beliefs. So one, enacting intellectual humility, performing intellectual humility, meditating on intellectual humility, and rewarding media and political elites who do display and perform intellectual humility. At an interpersonal level, it is it sounds hokey, Justin, but giving the benefit of the doubt is so powerful. And when I say giving the benefit of the doubt, just because we meet individuals whose trappings and appearance and cars and trucks and bumper stickers make it seem as though they are completely aligned with the opposing political team. The realities of public opinion on policy are far more complex. The more we just say, you know what? They look like this. They're driving this. They have allegiance to that side. I'm not even engaging. The worse this is going to get. People are a, a lot more moderate on their issue positions and policy positions than all of this circus would lead us to believe. So always giving the benefit of the doubt and relatedly reshuffling the deck, meaning being honest about our own, the complexities of our own political views. Sometimes on social media, when I have a belief that isn't the belief of most of my very liberal team, I find myself not wanting to say anything because I don't want to get pilloried. <laughs> pilloried is like an 1800s word. I don't even know what that means. But I don't want it. I don't want people to like pile on me. But what if it's in the interest of societal and democratic health to be really honest and say, this is how I'm seeing it right now. I think that we can throw a wrench in the works and that might slow this engine down. The end of this book finds you really coming to terms with your own anger about some of the recent politics of this country, turning a page in your own mind and perhaps your own kind of emotional disposition towards the state of the U.S. at the moment. How do you connect that to the conclusions of this book? When I look back and start really understanding these dynamics, I realize that anger and outrage are fuel that make everything run more efficiently that will continue to distill our identities and drive us apart. And to be able to push back against that and think about ways to complicate this through empathy, especially when we talk about regular people. There are a lot of regular people who we would be led to believe have awful beliefs, are trying to undo progress etc. If you get it under the hood and you engage with those individuals and you recognize they are trying to satisfy their needs for comprehension, control, and community, 
And they have been told that one of the ways they can do that is through these compromises that they're thinking that they can make. And if you approach those individuals from the standpoint of we're all trying to make sense of the world, we're all trying to live the best life we can, and we're all, it's a kind of, in the spirit of Buddhism, it's all trying to navigate what is a painful life, right? There's a lot of suffering and we're all trying to do the best we can and approaching it from that standpoint to try to connect on those grounds is actually so liberating and would really diminish the amount of fuel that the outrage apparatus runs on. I suppose there are perhaps limits to that kind of grace. If a person is challenging someone's very right to exist as part of their social identity framework. Yeah. And it is so challenging to talk about this. I have wonderful friends who push me on this and they say, and they're right. They say, be careful to not put too much burden on people who are already burdened. And I would never ask folks to give grace when their humanity is being questioned or their right to exist is being called into question. But for those of us who may be in a luxurious spot, right, maybe culturally or because of our sociodemographics, I think that it's incumbent upon us to try to make those connections, reduce that identity threat. But as I say in that last chapter, there are non-negotiables. And those non-negotiables for me are that we live in a liberal, pluralistic democracy, which requires equal voice and representation by race, sexual orientation, religion, etc. And so to the extent that any solutions to these problems call for compromise on that, they're not actually solutions. And of course, if someone is... If you have a loved one who you're trying to rescue from down a rabbit hole, if they are are hateful or it causes you psychological distress and pain, you got to figure out if it's worth it to you, obviously. Like, you got to make sure you could get through the day. But if you can, it's worth it. And if you can't, maybe leave it for another day. There are many ideas in this book that I suppose we'll have to leave for another day. I would commend my readers to it. Wrong, How Media, Politics, and Identity Drive Our Appetite for Misinformation. Danikal, thank you so much for speaking to me today. Thanks so much for having me on, Justin. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones, and thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.